The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. This is Rand Fishkin, co-author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Rand Fishkin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world published by Portfolio Penguin. Rand Fishkin is the founder of SparkToro and was previously co-founder of Moz and Inbound.org. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through the Whiteboard Friday video series, his blog, and his new book that we're going to talk about. When Rand's not working, he's most likely to be in the company of his partner in marriage and mostly petty crime, author Geraldine de Reuter. If you feed him great pasta or great whiskey, he'll give you the cheat code to rank number one on Google. And interesting fact, he proposed marriage to his wife, Geraldine, with a television commercial. Rand, congratulations on Lost and Founder and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Douglas. Looking forward to it. So uh, I was excited when I read about that uh, proposal you did with the television <laughs> commercial because I did the same thing. And now I found one other person that's wow. done this. <laughs> now, I should say, mine was not broadcast on television. So, you know, props to you. How did you, how did you pull it off? Well, I, had a, a, I took a movie, and then at the end of it, I, I made a commercial and then edited it on. I, I had it done at work. This was years ago at the agency I worked in in New York City. And so we watched the movie and then the commercial came on. And um, it was, you know, uh, it had the desired effect on the target audience, as I'm sure happened uh, with, with your uh, wife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's super exciting. No, I haven't, uh, haven't met someone else who's done that. But 
I mean, you probably know you get to practice, you know, a few hundred times proposing in front of a camera to get the take that you want. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, after uh, she watched it, uh, she said, um, I, I recall the three things she, my wife said. She said, yes. And then uh, she said, you're really weird. And then she said, can I see it again? So, <laughs> so I love you, it. Well, there you there, go. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, Rand, in your book, there is one chapter on uh, about vulnerability does not equal weakness. Uh, and so I just have to be, you know, transparent with you and let you know that, you know, uh, Rand Fishkin is on the Douglas Burdett man crush list. I mean, I've been, I've seen you keynote before. I've watched your whiteboard video, whiteboard Friday videos. I've read your blog. I've learned so much from you. And then I was at a, an inbound conference a year or two ago and you walked right in front of me. I think you were on your way to present and I immediately had to text one of my colleagues and say, you know, it was like a celebrity <laughs> sighting. So, oh God. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little, I'm a little fired up here. Well, that's very exciting, especially because at Inbound, there's actual celebrities. I mean, I think they had, <laughs> you know, uh, Aziz Ansari, right? And um, the, the big strong wrestler guy, John oh, Cena. John Cena. Yes, yeah. yes. And, yeah, and Michelle Obama. and uh, Oh, my God, Michelle Obama. All, all these. Although I, I suspect she's not going to walk right by you in the crowd. No, right? You're gonna... yeah. Well, and, and, and that's because she has, you know, some of the probably some of the best security. And let's know, hope if, so. if she walked by me, I would be nervous for her just because, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't even know who I am next to you, know, <laughs> Michelle Obama. Wait a minute, you can't trust me. Can you trust me? <laughs> right, right. So, Rand, uh, tell us the story of how this book came to be and why you wrote it. And I'll check back in an hour and see how things are going. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Please. <laughs> sure, sure. So the book came to be because I was looking for a project that I could do sort of on my own uh, at Moz uh, that would contribute to the company in a positive way. Um, and that would be, you know, sort of experimental and of interest. And it wouldn't take a lot of demanding time from the rest of the team uh, who's very busy. And so I settled on this idea of, hey, I'm, I'm going to write a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had already contributed as a co-author to The Art of SEO, which I mm -hmm. think is a great sort of tomb on that particular topic. And when you say tomb, for the listener, so the listener knows, it's like over a thousand pages. Oh, yeah, it's giant. <laughs> giant. Um, absolutely huge. And and really, you know, it's, it's very comprehensive. It tries to tackle a lot of the topics in the field. But um, I wanted to do something that wasn't as web marketing centric and was, but was still, you know, sort of, I'd say, lost and founders, maybe 30, 40% marketing heavy. Uh, and And the rest is about building a company and trying to run that company, trying to operate inside that company successfully, trying to grow, uh, trying to understand what the world of, you know, early stage and mid-stage entrepreneurship is like. And uh, that, you know, turned into essentially, I, I had a conversation with Eric Reese, author of The Lean Startup. And, you know, Eric's always been just super kind to me. And he uh, introduced me to his agent who uh, took me on. And then I... Um, Went to New York, pitched publisher, got a got a deal, and uh, and here we are. And that took probably six months that that pitch crafting process, and then the uh, it's going to be almost exactly two years from when I got the book deal to when the book comes out. So mm -hmm. it's a long process. Well, it's even longer because the things you talk about here go back years and years, and all the hard learned oh, sure. lessons. So. You know, as, as, if for folks that may not know, when, when you've done these videos in the past where you're explaining SEO 
you're you're just you're you're very very transparent and excellent uh, at making the complex simple. And your book, I I could tell it wasn't ghostwritten <laughs> because you no, were no, not at all. You were so transparent, and you said, "Look, this is what's gone well. This is what hasn't gone well." And there were just some fundamental things that um, I think would be very helpful for anyone in the startup world or. Uh, and particularly somebody who has this vision of the startup world and doesn't really understand um, well, the, the true the true uh, ins and outs of it. So um, one thing you mentioned on the on the very first page of the book was the universal truths we learn by age twelve, <laughs> and one of them was that the first time you play a new video game, you'll suck, and that is so true because. Years ago, my son tried to teach me how to play Call of Duty. He was having a lot of fun playing that, and uh -huh. I, I enjoyed watching it. And he goes, hey, come on, Dad, let me show you how to do this. And he tried to show me how to work the controller. And I was always getting killed like within the first 10 seconds or 15 yeah. seconds. Sure. And uh, so I, I gave it up, I'm afraid. I, I just never was never able ever, ever to get going with that. But as it relates to video games, can you explain what a cheat code is for those non-video game players in the audience? Right, right. So, you know, you're playing a game with your with your son or your daughter, right? And you uh, you have that experience where they say, you know, dad, you got to duck behind this wall. Right. And you think to yourself, how would I know that? How would I know that if you didn't tell me to do that? I would have played for weeks or months and never realized that behind this wall is, you know, whatever, the secret treasure chest or, or you know, the, a way to zoom ahead on the game or um, a, a way to get better at it. And that is that's the fundamental core of the cheat code idea, right? That there's this there's these little pro tips that if you've been playing for a long time, you pick pick up and learn, and you can apply in your next game. And you can give those tips, you can pass them on to other people, and maybe they won't apply them, but if they do, they'll get better at the game too. Mm -hmm. And I think I think startups work in just this fashion. Um, and I really like I, I like using this analogy of the video game just because. Uh, it resonates with a lot of people, right? Everyone's played a game, whether it's a video game or in-person game or a tabletop game or whatever it is, a board game, and and knows that there's those little little cheat codes that if you figure out uh, and can apply, you're going to be better at the game than someone who's playing for the first time. Mm -hmm. And Lost and Founder is really about giving out a bunch of the cheat codes that for me were hard won in the entrepreneurial game. and mm -hmm. And hopefully hopefully helping folks to avoid the mistakes and missteps. Look, you're going to you're going to start a company or if you have already started a company and you're trying to grow it or if you're, you know, one of the early employees in a company, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up. Absolutely. My hope is just you don't have to make exactly the same mistakes that I did. Right, right. Well, let me just quote from uh, the beginning of the book here, uh, picking up on the cheat code. You say, "This book is one really long cheat code. I wrote it so that you don't have to repeat the mistakes I've made so you can leapfrog the wasted months, the wasted cash, and the heartache too many of us endure. So that if you don't live in a geography with lots of other startup founders, you can still get the inside scoop. To unlock these cheat codes, you'll need context, stories, data, and thorough explanations. And I won't just share the tactical tips and tricks. I have to include the ugly, heartbreaking realities too. If I held back out of a fear or a desire to make myself or my company look better than it is, I'd be failing you. That's why this book is so transparent about the things founders don't normally discuss. Money, depression, layoffs, 
failure. And then uh, going on, there's a, another uh, topic about this whole image of the, of the startup founder. And you say, the aggrandized archetype of the startup founder is powerful and pervasive. These entrepreneurs pull themselves up from nothing and create jobs, wealth, and world-changing tech despite their meager beginnings. It's also total bullshit. Rand Fishkin, why is that? It's bullshit because statistically speaking, uh, if you look at founders of early stage companies, especially in the tech world, especially the most lauded ones, they almost all uh, come from backgrounds of immense wealth and privilege. So Bill Gates here in, here in the Seattle area, right, mm -hmm. is obviously one of the most successful entrepreneurs uh, of the 20th and 21st century and, you know, built an incredible company and, and now is, is changing the world in lots of positive ways um, that, that I think many, many people admire. But Bill Gates's parents were extremely wealthy Seattleites, very, very well-connected folks. Um, his father had, had an extremely successful law firm, right? I think uh, Bill Gates dropped out of an Ivy League school. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of an Ivy League school. Uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin went to Stanford, right? So uh -huh. you, you look at these uh, folks and what you don't see are, well, I was living in a trailer or you know, I was uh, living out of the back of my car for a few years. Those stories are so rare. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that sucks because that's the fundamental promise, the, the implicit and explicit promise that the United States tries to make to the rest of the world, that this is a place where it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, you have that opportunity. And yet, you know, when you look at the startup world, it is not, it is not that way. The wealth and opportunity is not distributed in the ways that we might want. And so, you know, to the degree that some other people can share their cheat codes and I can share mine and hopefully folks can get better access to, you know, the information that'll skip them ahead a level or yeah, help them avoid that early death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talk about how the, the myth of founding a startup, uh, you know, where you can do what you love is it's enshrined in the tech world and of popular culture. It's, 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 it's this myth of getting rich. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that drives me nuts for, for various reasons, I cringe when I hear young people being told to follow their passion. <laughs> Explain what you mean when you say that great founders don't actually do what they love. They enable a vision. Yeah. So fundamentally, I think the mythology of, you know, Silicon Valley startup culture is exactly what you described, right? It's, hey, go follow your passion. Do this thing that you love and really want to do. But as a startup founder, uh, most of your day will be spent not, especially as you scale, not doing the thing that you love, but uh, building a team and an infrastructure that allows that thing to be done by other people. Mm -hmm. And the, that is a, an important distinction because if you go into it believing this myth that you're going to get to follow your passion, right? That, that the, the great part about building my own company is I get to do what I want. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if we're talking about a one-person consulting firm, absolutely, you get to do what you want. Although 40% of your time is probably going to be spent doing things that you hate, maybe 50, maybe even 60% of that time, mm -hmm. right? Things like you need to have a call with the state tax office and they're going to route you to another state tax office who's going to tell you that you need to go back to the first one. 
you know, you're going to have a call with a customer who hasn't paid and you're going to have to figure out how you get through that payroll. And you think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought I signed up so that I could do whatever it is, design or SEO. or Yeah, you, know, you thought you were going to work in the business, but the truth is you're, you're working on it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, so I think trying to dispel that myth and have people go in with their eyes open about, oh, okay, if I want to build a business that scales, this is what that entails, mm-hmm. right? This other, this whole other process. And I better be ready for those things and know that they're coming and not, not sell myself um, a bill of goods by walking into this situation that, that is going to create a job that I actually hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know in the book you talk about why self-awareness is so important. Yeah. Those that are more self-aware are able to determine like maybe what they are good at and then are able to find other people to sort of round out what is needed. Yeah, in some cases. Um, I wrote about this a little bit as well. I think, I think that's another common myth is that you, you, know, you sort of identify your strengths and then you surround yourself with people who can bolster your weaknesses. That is not untrue, but it misses a crucial point, which is that if you're not good at something, you're also going to have a very hard time identifying people who are good at that thing. And you're going to have an even harder time once those people are on board with you uh, judging their work, right? And telling them when they're you know, not doing a good enough job or when uh, they have made a critical misstep or helping them to hire the rest of their team uh, or you know, broadcasting uh, your company is an interesting place to work for people like that. Those, are, those things are really, really hard if you don't have expertise in those areas, which is why very often, you know, engineering-centric startups struggle with marketing. Mm-hmm. Marketing-centric startups struggle with, you know, product and building. A lot of startups struggle with design because they're not, you know, they don't have design and, and UX baked into their, their sort of founder's DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I spent, I spent some, some time talking about that and talking about ways that over, you know, the course of many years, we've overcome that. We've found workarounds and solutions. We've found ways to to sort of upgrade yourself um, and your team in ways that can account for and overcome that weakness. Mm-hmm. You have been very generous over the years, you know, like I said earlier, about teaching the world about SEO and, and lots of marketing topics, and please don't stop. <laughs> but um, <laughs> talk about how that benefited your company early on, and can you contrast that with the companies that think that's just not a good idea or, or that really push back on that notion of, freely sharing information. Sure. I mean, I think that it is not right for every company. So if you're if you're getting pushback on it, that is totally reasonable. It it could be, you know, when when I tell folks to, you know, invest in in marketing, I often get this question of, well, what should I start with? You know, there's so many channels, there's so many uh, opportunities. And what I always say is find marketing channels and tactics that are at the intersection of three things. The first one is something you are personally passionate about and excited about and interested in. Because if you're not, I almost never see you know, people or, or very early stage companies invest in a marketing channel that they hate and do well with. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. If, if, you know, if the founders, if the two founders of a company are like, God, Instagram is just the worst. I hate that crap. Yeah. You know, I heard, uh, I heard Jay Bear the other day say, if you hate social media, you're going to suck at social media. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So the second thing is a place where your audience actually 
engages. So if it turns out that you love Instagram, but none of your audience is there, well, don't do it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, not, that's not a good match, mm -hmm. right? Whereas, you know, if you, if you say to yourself, gosh, I, I, I really like uh, in-person events. I feel like I'm, you know, relatively good at sort of in-person networking and I like going to shows and I think I could build a career, you know, speaking and those sorts of things. And my audience is there. Terrific. Great. Perfect. Wonderful match. Don't have to be on social media. Don't have to, you know, engage in building a, a terrific blog or those kinds of things. But if you can be a great speaker, maybe that's a way to go. And then the third thing is somewhere where you can provide value that is unique from what everyone else is doing in the field. Mm -hmm. So if all your competitors are also on Instagram and they're also doing, you know, uh, fun and funny videos around your topic, well, how, how are you going to stand out? What is sort of the unique value that you're bringing there? Mm -hmm. And if you can find something that's at the intersection of all three of those, I think you can do really well. And for me, that happened to be learning about SEO and then teaching other people about SEO openly and freely. But I am not trying to espouse that as the one and only tactic. It worked extremely well for me and for Moz. To your point, right, I think that I have developed over time a, a reasonable sense of how to turn complex information into, you know, easy to learn pieces of, of content. And I enjoy writing. I love creating, you know, little graphics that I can share with folks. I like making presentations and delivering those on stages. I enjoy you know, making the whiteboard Friday videos and drawing up my, my silly little stick figures to illustrate how search works. So all of those things worked for me because they were a match on those three vectors, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily right for you. Mm -hmm. A good explanation. One thing about your blog that I think is important for the listeners to hear is you, you were blogging for a long time and it was seemed like it was quite a while before you got what you thought was was decent traction. Uh, and I, yeah. I think this is an important lesson for, for companies and marketers that want results tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first, let's see, four years blogging at, at SEO Moz. So that was sort of from the end of 2003 when the site wasn't even called SEO Moz up until about 2007. You know, I was blogging f five nights a week, Sunday through Thursday nights. Uh, and then putting it up very late at night, usually between 1 and 2 a.m. Pacific, so that it would hit like, you know, the morning in Europe and, and in the UK and then hit the East Coast. And that took off probably somewhere between year two and year three after I had written, you know, hundreds of blog posts that had been read by, eh, you know, if I was lucky, a few dozen people. Um, so this is this is a process where, yeah, you it's a it's a long learning curve and a steep one. And if you think that you're going to invest in content and, you know, six months from now, you're going to have great results and thousands of visits and tons of leads, you're fooling yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a, this is a long, slow burn. Well, it meant a lot. And I can remember years ago, I guess there was one article you had written about how your wife's blog, you made some comment about how it really didn't start taking off until she'd been at it for two years. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, you you find that with virtually everyone. You know, even the most successful bloggers out there. You know, you look at somebody like a a Darren Rouse or um, a Seth Godin or you know many other folks. Uh, Kenji Lopez Alt, right in the food world. All these folks had had years where they sort of struggled and were trying to find their voice and figure out what resonated with their audience, and then 
And then once we all heard of them, it seemed like they were overnight successes. Yeah, I've seen uh, Chris Brogan talk about how it only took him 10 years to become an overnight success. Yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting. So <laughs> For him or you? Fingers crossed. Oh, for me. Oh, well, this interview is pretty much going to do it for you. So, <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Let's uh, transition here and talk about this concept of uh, scalable marketing flywheels, which I love and I'm going to be using to explain marketing better, and growth hacks. But let's start with growth hacks. You talk about how companies are obsessed with finding the right innovative hack, and they're starting to you know, almost use that instead of classic marketing practices. What is a growth hack, and why is it problematic in your view? Yeah, so the growth hack is sort of revered in Silicon Valley startup culture as this you know what I love describing as the one weird tip that will transform your business. The silver bullet. <laughs> the silver bullet. That's right. That's right. It's this concept that if we find this one innovation about how we can acquire customers or acquire customers better or at greater scale, that will make the business take off. And therefore, it's always this search for that one weird trick for the silver bullet, as opposed to investing in long, slow burn tactics you know, uh, building a brand, building a community, creating a, a, a marketing engine that's served by both organic and uh, and paid media that sort of builds up over time, but but never has that you know incredible spike. And I think Silicon Valley culture is is very much about the spike, mm -hmm. and and because of that, it's been amplified into the rest of the marketing world as as what we look for and. To be honest, some of it's pretty fun to listen to, right? You you hear someone on stage and they talk about like, well, let me show you this one growth hack that transformed Airbnb from a nothing business into, you know, a multi-billion dollar unicorn startup. It, it is fascinating to listen. It's almost like uh, watching a detective show about how they finally solved a crime. Yeah. Oh, it's so compelling, right? It pulls you in. It's great storytelling. but like a lot of these things, it's also bullshit. <laughs> right. There wasn't one tactic that made Airbnb incredibly successful. There was a ton of things tried over time. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. They kept investing in a lot of them. They built the brand, right? They did a, a good job serving early customers. They started really small, just renting out their cat. But so it, it's just crap. Uh, same is true with Facebook, right? Everyone thinks that Facebook found these like couple of growth hacks that made their business take off. And nope. Not, not true at all. There was a big growth team at Facebook that wasn't just chasing hacks. They were investing in lots of long-term, slow-burn marketing stuff like, like SEO and, and paid media and, and acquisition and teams that went to colleges and recruited people and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the point of this is to say that we at Moz tried this growth hack chasing ourselves. And, and I give a, a specific example about a big email campaign we did once and, and then how we kept trying to find those, you know, those hacks that would transform the business and basically how that, that really didn't work. Even when it appeared to work in the short term, it didn't work in the long term. One of the big problems with growth hacks is they don't make your product more valuable. They don't make people necessarily love you more, right? Or trust you more. Mm -hmm. or have better brand awareness. They are not fundamentally exchanging more value between you and your customers. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them, even if they look good in the short term and produce that traffic spike or conversion spike, tend to look shoddy in the long term. Mm -hmm. The solution, in my experience, and I think in a lot of companies' experience, has built, been to build these 
what I what I call marketing flywheels, and that is essentially a system of growth and acquisition that scales with decreasing friction, meaning that the next time you try and you know, turn that mechanism or, you know, acquire customers in that same way. It's a little easier than it was the last time. But it was really hard to get it started. But it's really, really hard to get it started. And in fact, our conversation about blogs is a perfect example of that, right? It's really, really hard to get a blog started to get, you know, your initial few hundred, few thousand loyal visitors who, you know, read everything you write and amplify everything that you put out there. But once you do, The next time you want to publish a piece of content and get the same amplification, well, guess what? It's much, much easier, right? So if I wanted to, in year three of of the Moz blog, if I wanted to get, you know, 10,000 people to read something that I'd written, oh man, you know, I could have spent probably two months trying to promote it and get people to talk about it and try and earn links to it, try and get rankings for it you know, try and amplify it on the early social media channels that were around back then and forums, I probably wouldn't even reach 10,000. Just mm-hmm. just almost impossible for me to do. Today, if I want 10,000 people to watch a Whiteboard Friday, you know what I do? I hit publish. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. So, and why is that? Why is that? That's because... Because you've done the work. Yeah, because a lot of people, subs- a lot more people subscribe and, you know, it's built up slowly over time and and every Whiteboard Friday gets, you know, a lot of people tweeting about it and r- writing about it on LinkedIn and sharing it with their colleagues. There's a bunch of, you know, there's tons of agencies across the across the world that sit down for lunch every Friday and they, they watch Whiteboard Friday together and then they discuss whatever, you know, SEO topic was brought up. And I love that. I think it's just, you know, it's awesome. It's wonderful. It is not going to happen in month six of producing videos. Yeah, it's like the expression of when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago. <laughs> when's the next best time now? Yeah. So, but I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of legacy thinking, I, I feel, in the marketing world that's used to writing a check, getting an ad, you know, and having some sort of immediate result. Right. Well, and advertising, it's wonderful because advertising has started to work this way, too. And so even advertisers are getting this idea that there's this algorithm behind the scenes that controls the visibility and the cost per impression and the cost per click and per acquisition of their ads, right? So with Google AdWords, for example, you go, you start up a brand new campaign with Google AdWords and then test your ads a little bit. And, you know, but if you're not well known among your audience, your click-through rate is going to be much lower than people they do know and recognize, And so your quality score is going to be poor compared to the brands that are well-known. And so you're going to have to build up your brand over time so that you can build up your quality score. And then Google starts to reward that. And now they're showing your ad more frequently and you're getting a higher click-through rate, which means Google charges you less and less per click. And so now you're scaling with decreasing friction. Mm-hmm. Works in the ad world and the organic world. Yeah, that's right. So let me just conclude that part. You said on page 134, the power of the marketing flywheel is clear to us. But it's not just Moz for whom this works. Of the most successful startups, nearly everyone has a clearly identifiable marketing flywheel that brought awareness and traffic from the right audiences and helped those people convert to a sale or a sign up at the right time. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, 
Seriously, I've met many of you, and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success, and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful or will be, because all the research indicates that big learners are big earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial. But there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan, that's what I did, and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now, back to the show. So another thing I wanted to ask you about that's really super relevant to not just startups, but the, the, the marketing world, the sales world for somebody who's maybe working at a big company, and that is the idea of living your customer's life. Can you talk about the epiphany you had when you did that and why you found it to be so important? Sure. Yeah. So basically, I think that one of the risks founders run not just founders, you know what, everyone, everyone, as you start to make progress in your career, and as you start to get recognition for that progress, you come to believe that you're good at something, right? And you come to believe that you have an intuitive knowledge that people can trust and that doesn't need the same degree of verification and validation uh, that you might have had in your early days. Like, hey, just trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. I've done this a bunch before. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, I certainly fell into that camp. And, and I think as a result, you know, sort of designed a product and had, had this idea about where 
the web marketing industry was going that that eventually turned turned out to be just totally false. And by this epiphany that I had and that I wrote about is basically I did this CEO swap, right, where I my friend Will Reynolds and I swapped lives for a week. You know, I ran his company for a week. I took over his email. I lived at his house. I walked his dog. Uh, right. I, I did all his charity events and, and Will came out to Seattle and ran Moz for a week. You know, he was, he, he was CEO. He attended my meetings. He went to my networking events. He lived at our apartment and all that kind of stuff. And the, you know, that week taught me a ton about what real customers of Moz including lots of lots of consultants at Seer, how they used our tools, how they used other people's tools, how they did their job. And I had this recognition of, oh my gosh, this is this is sort of proving why this product, you know, that I had dreamed up doesn't work at all. And so my, you know, my advice to folks is to try and put yourselves as literally in your customers' shoes as you can. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of advice out there about how you build right things for customers and validate those things. You know, Eric's book, Lean Startup, is great on that. I really like Jake Knapp's book from, from Google Ventures, uh, Sprint as well. And, and this chapter is trying to talk a little bit more about the how do I actually build these close connections with my, with my customers and their influencers so that I can start to recognize what they what they need and what will work with them. And then I can go do the validation process described in something like a lean startup or a sprint. Mm -hmm. In uh, Martin Lindstrom's book, Small Data, he he talks about how, kind of related to this, but he, he talks about how a lot of marketers are now almost over-reliant on just data and they're uh, using it as uh, sometimes as a crutch. And he's saying that you've actually got to go sleep in your customer's house. <laughs> and he's got clients where they say everyone's going to go visit a customer. They're going to sleep overnight in their house. So maybe that's an extreme, but he talks about yeah. the exact same thing and the insights you get. And just you said you were sitting there watching them use your tool, your uh, Moz tool, as well as some of your competitors. And there was a bit of a revelation because, as I recall, they were using all the tools. And I think there might have been a perception on your part that, they tended to use one. Is that right? Yeah. My my thinking was, oh, it's such a pain to have to learn a bunch of different tools, interfaces, and processes. You'd much rather use an all-in-one tool, even if it's not you know best in class at everything. And that assumption was totally wrong. Just completely, you know, laid to waste by watching not just the folks from Seer, but you know, over time, lots and lots of. Uh, consultants and in-house folks who are happy to switch between tools uh, and learn totally new systems if it gives them even slightly better data, you know, a slightly better experience. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that was kind of assumption challenging right away and and made me realize that that Moz's broadening in our product strategy was very poorly conceived. And unfortunately, you know, I think it took until 2016 when Moz sort of had this the big round of layoffs and the, and the strategy changed to go back to focusing on SEO. You know, it took until then to sort of get the rest of the organization to buy into that. Mm -hmm. One of the many things that was very eye-opening and very clear that I would hope more people in the startup world would, would understand is, um, well, there's one chapter you talk about how Founding a 5% startup may not actually make you rich. Can you talk a bit about that? Why it's, it's, uh, it's uh, about how this, the venture world is all about outliers and how it's a different life, but 
after reading your book, my expectations were very clearly managed about the possibilities of getting rich. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a lot of the reason that that many people go into building their own company and their own startup is because they're looking for financial independence. And that's that's not a terrible thing. I think I think that's absolutely fine, right? Independence. Yeah, yeah, financial independence. Right. But unfortunately, that in in the tech world in particular, I think the stories about the billion dollar outcomes being so amplified and the pejorative use of phrases like lifestyle business right to insultingly demean people who might build a business that makes them you know a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars a year but isn't trying to you know follow the mentality of the cancer cell and grow at all costs mm-hmm. that amplification that message has really sunk in with a huge portion of you know sort of startup chasers and and it's created a gold rush right that you can see geographically in Silicon Valley, but sort of all over the world in, in the idea of, of the tech startup. And unfortunately, the, the reality is that almost no one should try and follow in the footsteps of Facebook and Google, but almost everyone is. Mm. And as a result, you know, you get a lot of weird outcomes. You also get a lot of biased beliefs, right? So many, you know, many people might assume, I know I've you know, talked to friends about this, right? They're sort of like, oh, well, you know, you're the founder of Moz, you own a quarter of this, you know, $50 million a year company that's profitable and growing. So, you know, you must, you must have some money. And I'm sort of like, "Mm, uh, no, (laughs) not really. I mean, I have a nice, well, had, I I, I just left the company about a month ago, but, you know, I had a nice salary. But you you drove a 13-year-old Kia and you live in an apartment. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so (laughs) I think, um, I think there's a lot of folks who are like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought that doing this and you know building this type of a company would would make you rich and you got a you know you got 30 million dollars in venture capital are you saying that that those things don't make you wealthy and the answer is well it's complicated yeah. <laughs> it's very complicated right and so I, I try and spend some time breaking down the mechanics of the venture model and and how stock works and how stock options work I talk about it both for founders and for employees to, to try and give folks a sense of like, oh, wait a minute, right? If, you know, if I joined Facebook at the right time and I stuck around and I executed on my options and then I sold them at the right time, I did the right things with my taxes, I could have made, you know, a nice amount of money, a few hundred thousand or a million dollars, even as an employee. But if I join a company that doesn't have that incredible outcome, that that is a lot less likely. And, you know, here are sort of the odds of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the rea- you know the reality is that while salaries are high and competitive in that world, they're also in geographically extremely expensive areas to live, and it's just like a gold rush, right? Yep. A very few people are getting extremely rich, and everyone else is excited about the possibility to become one of those very few people. Yes, you always hear about the, in the gold rush in California, the people that made the most money were the people selling <laughs> pickaxes and shovels. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I don't know, maybe that's the the lawyers and the investors, right? Right, right. Yes, probably so. Well, one last thing I wanted you to talk about from the book is the part that I can't stop thinking about. And that is where you talk about the dramatic effects that come from focusing more on behaviors than outcomes. Yeah. And, and I think it applies to sales. It applies to, to so many things. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. I mean, I actually, I stole this concept from the world of, of weight loss and mental health. Yes. Mm-hmm. Both these areas have, have a lot of overlapping principles. When you, when you put all of your effort and energy into this one tactic that you've sort of heard or believe will give you the outcome that you want, and it doesn't, or it doesn't do it quickly, people become despondent. And, you know, whether it's weight loss or, or fixing their mental health or, you know, repairing a relationship. But they'll say like, I tried that and it doesn't work. I tried it and it doesn't work. Didn't work, right? And what's really interesting is when you can, you know, what, what, what scientists have sort of observed and researchers have observed is that when you can get people not thinking about, did it work or did it not work? but rather saying, did I do it or did I not do it? So every morning I have these, these physical therapy exercises that I do. I have a um, degenerative disc disease, which I think unfortunately a lot of Jews have because, you know, hundreds of years of inbreeding. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> no, but you talked about in the book, it's, a, I guess, uh, it, it leads to sciatica, and I think it's in your left yeah, leg. Yeah, yeah, I've, exactly. I've had a, I had a torn disc, and I was like, oh, I was empathizing oh. with you there. Yeah, no, that's those are those are brutal, right? And yeah. and that that back pain kind of lives with you. I have a as a result, I have a standing desk, and I I rarely sit down. And so you know, long story short, I I do these exercises, even though on on a given day I would say no, it doesn't feel like it's helping, right? I don't feel like I'm getting better, but I I reward myself at least mentally, right? I check off this box that is I did those exercises. Mm. That was that was good for me. Doing the exercise was good for me, even even if I'm not noticing the positive results. And crossing it off the list releases yeah. all kinds of good chemicals in your brain. Exactly, right? And I think that that is really true in, in all sorts of facets of you know, business and, and life, right? Is that, that finding things that are sort of positive for you and then investing in those and measuring the activity, not the outcome. You can measure the outcome too, but but focusing on the activity and the accomplishment of the task, right? The, the crossing off of the checklist um, has all sorts of positive, both mental and long-term, you know, physical, whether if that's, you know, what you're focusing on or emotional benefits. Mm-hmm. And that, so when I talked about depression, that was one of the things that I think is correlated for many people who do end up coming out of depression and, and being able to you know, fight it off long term is that they invest not in the outcome, not in the, am I depressed today? Okay, no. All right, keep doing, right? Mm-hmm. But but instead focusing on, okay, I got a walk outside and I, I got sun and I took my vitamin D supplement and I did my exercises and I stayed away from, you know, toxic people and I, you know, whatever the things are that sort of help you maintain and manage your your mental and emotional health, you invest in those activities as opposed to worrying about the outcome and and results tend to be better. Mm-hmm. It's, sort of, it's very counterintuitive and it's hard to hard to build the right mental model around, but but if you can, it's powerful. But you know, if for me it linked right back to that first story about how you just stayed at the blogging, the content creation. You just <laughs> right. kept plowing ahead and or you know to to mix metaphors madly here the, the flywheel slowly started spinning and then once it's spinning yeah. you want to keep you want to keep it going you know yeah yeah absolutely so rand if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be i mean this is not a book that can be summarized in you know 
a short essay or a TED talk. This is, you know, a ton of different stories on a bunch of different topics. But I think that they all carry this one message, which is if everyone is telling you that something is a best practice or the way to do things or or the right result or you know what what matters in the world what's impressive i think there's tremendous value in countering that and looking at other alternative options oh what a what a great answer yes that is that is that is excellent it also reminds me of the notion of in the stock market when everyone's talking about stocks that's when you need to sell <laughs> time to buy bonds right that's right so what books have inspired your working career yeah, there's a few uh, that we talked about today. Obviously, Lean Startup and Sprint. Um, mm-hmm. I've really liked recently Kim Scott's Radical Candor, mm-hmm. which I thought was a terrific book. I started reading a book from Patty McCord, who was the the chief people officer at Netflix, uh, called Powerful, and, um, and oh, I've, yeah. I've liked that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I mentioned in the Lost and Founder, I mentioned that uh, Jim Collins's book, Good to Great. Uh, was sort of an early catalyst for me to think about a lot of things differently, right? And to try and correlate various factors with with what produces successful outcomes, successful long-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And there was one other I want to mention that you, you mentioned several books in your book. Uh, one was uh, Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So we're going to include a link to all of those books so people can find them at your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so uh, my new website is sparktoro.com. Uh, and I've got a blog there and a page about the book. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm most active. That's at Rand Fish. Okay, super. And so if you're out there listening, tweet at Rand to thank him for being on the show. I'm Marketing Book. We're also going to include a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile. And I should add that on the book page on SparkToro, you mentioned that if people buy the book, your grandparents will be positively delighted. <laughs> Yeah, I put a picture of them there just for fun. <laughs> and I'm going to put that picture. It's it, Your grandparents are adorable. I'm going to put a picture of that. Not that you aren't too, Rand, but you're, you're there in the picture with them. I'm going to have, I want to put that no, picture very... on your, on your, uh, your episodes. Uh, yeah, show they're, they're in their mid nineties and still, still going strong. Wow. And very excited for the book. So. Oh, yeah. terrific. So let me just close with one quick little excerpt. The very end of the book, you say, so here I go. Into the unknown future, still lost, but far better prepared than last time. And hopefully after finishing this book, you are too. The name of the book is Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. The author is Rand Fishkin. Rand, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Close the book on episode 172 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat, and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast. I also have a link to that special offer at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Nick Westergaard back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Brand Now, how to stand out in a crowded, distracted world. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.